Hello, Katie. Hello, Dum Dum, as you're known professionally. How's it going? Sup? Right, sup. So uh, Katie's <laughs> tried to sound a bit more young and hip because... <laughs> Don't tell people that. She just said that when she was listening back last week, we sounded really old. Um, <laughs> so how's that going for you, Katie? Thanks for telling everyone how the sausage is made. Um, yes, I'm well, thank you. And like a good old lady, I've been just kind of strong through Paris and having a nice time. It is so beautiful and autumnal along the canals that it kind of makes me want to cry. It's just lovely. Um, what's been happening in Berlin? It's been amazing summer weather here until today when suddenly it was like autumn overnight. But um, I kind of don't mind. I'm kind of excited about it after the climate apocalypse preview we had over the summer. This is such like old person weather chat. We're doing really well at the whole young person thing. This is such old person British weather chat. Um, but yeah, I'm mainly just rehearsing still, to be honest, or TBH, as the young people say. But I did discover something quite exciting in the rehearsals of my opera, which is that like, it's based on a, a book by Edgar Allan Poe, you know, this Canadian short story writer or is he American I can't remember never know which is which um anyway I discovered that the new bits of libretto that have been added in are mainly all for me Trump quotes what so I'm basically playing like a weird evil doctor who says all this stuff like oh how beautiful fear is and I felt like such an idiot when I realized one of my lines is je rendrai la grandeur à la maison Usher. <laughs> I will make the house of Usher great again it sounds so much more elegant in French, though. Sounds amazing in French. Do listen back to our episode about translating Trump, by the way. Little plug for a previous episode. Um, he sounds very majestic in French. I thought it would just be things like, you know, très mal, very bad. Mal. Or tremendous. What would that be? Like, merveilleux. Does he say tremendous? Yeah, he said that hurricane that's coming in was like tremendously big and tremendously wet. Oh, yeah, he just speaks in hyperbole. It's nice that you're channeling Trump. Don't turn into him or anything. No, I won't. I'm kind of Trump meets a, like a creepy psychoanalyst. Great, great combo. Um, By the way, just for the record, Edgar Allan Poe was American. Don't know what made you think he was Canadian. Just Googled it. Someone said today that he was Canadian and it really confused me. So I blame whoever that someone was in my rehearsal room. Um, If you're listening, shame on you. Did you get any further in your quest to understanding why German food is so salty? Well, funny you should say that. We had a little call-in. Play the track. Hi, my name's Corey, and I'm calling from Denver, Colorado. I love listening to your show. Uh, my husband, I'm calling because he is German, and he's also a chef. So I asked him the question about the salty food that you're eating. And his first quick response was that Germans know how to season food better. <laughs> that was his snarky response but then he said it might be because um, Germans use a lot of preservation techniques in their like cured fish or pickling or even vegetables to preserve the summer harvest through the winter months they do that a lot over there and so maybe you're eating things like that that's what he said all right guys thank you well, there you have it. Mystery solved, possibly. That's so nice. I love it when people send us voice memos. 
please do that more often, everyone. It was such a nice surprise. It makes us feel less lonely in the world. It does. Oh, I was thinking, Katie, we might have some new listeners, so we should probably like introduce ourselves again because we haven't done that for ages. Yeah, go on then. Who are you? So I am Dominic. I am an opera singer living in Amsterdam from Britain, but currently in Berlin. For like two months. Who are you? I'm Katie. I am a journalist. I'm a friend of yours, or at least I thought I was, Aww. going back in a very long time. We've been friends for like 10 years. And last November, we had an idea to start making a podcast about Europe, just because kind of as Brits, we don't really talk about what happens in the rest of the continent very much. And it kind of felt like that was maybe one of the things that has contributed to us voting to leave the European Union. So we just kind of wanted to reach out and talk to people every week from the rest of the continent. So that's what we do. We ring up people who are doing interesting things and have interesting things to say. And uh, it's been really good. We've talked to loads of interesting people so far. And we try really hard to like cover issues that, I mean, they're not all really happy stories apart from the happy ending. But um, we try to cover these issues in a way that isn't going to make you like want to block your ears and go la 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 la. We try to. Most of the time. Apart from we try to talk about climate change. That was... Bad. That was bad. So what interesting person are we speaking to today? We are talking to Alice Patini. She is the research coordinator at Housing Europe, which uh, represents all the bodies across the continent that deal with social housing. We're kind of talking about it this week because uh, Sweden has had some elections very recently, last last week, weekend before last. In those elections, immigration uh, was a really big issue, as it has been in lots of recent elections around the continent. And particularly like how immigrants and refugees and asylum seekers have been integrating into Sweden and it just kind of came up in conversation the other day uh, with my boyfriend actually housing and like how important housing is in the way that immigrants are able to integrate in a new place and I just thought that was really super interesting we don't really talk about it very much so we're going to be calling up Elice in Brussels because she is uh, much cleverer than us but first ever the consistent podcast we start with bad week first because it's depressing and maybe get it out of the way go for it cool it's been a bad week for Viktor Orban the Hungarian prime minister and populist leader extraordinaire last week the European parliament triggered something called article 7 of the EU treaty you still awake <sighs> pay attention this is really important triggered article 7 of the EU treaty against the Hungarian government what this means is that Hungary has just been given a massive telling off from the rest of Europe for various policies that have been brought in over the last eight-ish years while Viktor Orban's been in power. Would you like me to name a few of the changes that he's made? Okay. Viktor Orban has filled the constitutional court with people who like him, which makes it really hard for a supposedly independent court to do stuff that works against him. How is that any different to what happens in America always? <laughs> That's a good point. But we're talking about European values here, Dominic. We do things differently. Okay, carry on. Secondly, he has waged a campaign against the Central European University, which is a well-respected English language university in, uh, in Budapest. Basically, he's been waging a campaign against that because it's funded by his arch nemesis, a guy called George Soros, billionaire, you might have heard of him. Thirdly, uh, the media has become really concentrated in the hands of oligarchs that are linked to the ruling party. And one of the things that I find most disturbing is that uh, Auburn has passed a law which makes it illegal to help asylum seekers in various ways, particularly like offering legal help or filling in forms and that kind of thing, which is abhorrent, frankly, like having access to decent legal assistance if you're an asylum seeker looking for a safe place to live is something that should just be a basic human right. 
so the European Parliament voted to condemn Orbán's government for all of this stuff. It could eventually mean that their voting rights get suspended in the EU, but that's seen as really super unlikely. So the first phase is that the vote goes through. Then the council gives a formal warning and gives them recommendations on what they could do to improve. So presumably if they then don't improve, then the voting rights could be taken away. I'm sure Auburn will be delighted to be handed all of these recommendations from Brussels about like how he should be running his country. He hasn't responded very well to the whole thing. But even though it's probably not going to mean a huge amount in terms of like their ability to vote on EU decisions and stuff like that, it doesn't mean that what happened last week isn't really important. I actually think it's really, really important. We talk a lot on this podcast about what it means to be European and usually we don't have any answers to that question. But I kind of think this ruling makes it really really clear what the EU stands for like this is the EU saying to Orban who wouldn't get into the EU today frankly if Hungary was applying muzzling the press and the courts is not European and saying that you want to bring back the death penalty is not European all of this rule of law stuff it's not very sexy and it is very abstract which is why I think the EU sometimes struggles to communicate what it is and why you should like it but these things are really important and they're things that we can agree are good i think democracy is good yes good one katie i was quite like riled up by that i thought should you be running for election <laughs> thanks maybe i should send your donations to europeanspodcast.gmail.com <laughs> should get a paypal or something we should get a paypal the other thing that i think is interesting about all of this is that uh, i think it reflects a kind of battle for europe soul that's going on at the moment so on one side you've got populist politicians like Orbán and the ruling party in poland who talk a lot about like the dangers imposed by immigrants and the need to protect christian values and on the other side you've got people like Emmanuel Macron who are like yay Europe liberal values and it's starting to feel like that is the war of ideas that it has been shaping up for a while already and is probably going to come out in some form or another in the European elections which we're having next year so watch this space I will watch who's had a good week it has been a good week for the city of Uppsala in Sweden, who were announced the winners of the World Wildlife Fund's One Planet City Challenge for their ambitious and innovative climate actions. So uh, the WWF looks at things like city planning, infrastructure, etc., etc., to decide which city is doing the most to help our rather sickly planet Earth. My words, not theirs. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you just personified being the personification of our sick earth. Well done, Katie. I am Mother Earth. You are. I've always thought that. Um, I tried to find out like exactly what Uppsala have been doing that made them such a shining beacon of environmentalism. And the only thing that it says on the WWF's website is that they appreciated Uppsala's sophisticated cross-sector sustainability interventions, as well as its strong leadership in the surrounding regions. I mean, now, maybe I'm stupid, but this cross-sector sustainability interventions thing is something that I really I have to reread it and reread it and I still don't really understand what it means why do people talk like that it's so annoying I know especially when talking about something like this that is like a case study for what is being done right and I don't doubt them that they chose them for really good reasons the only thing I know about Uppsala and green stuff is that my boyfriend second mention this podcast he's doing very well was in Uppsala quite recently and he sent both of us do you remember a picture of this bike rental scheme called EU bike which was quite cool oh I'd forgotten that yeah and it's free for the first 10 uses I zoomed in on the picture it says it on the bike well that in itself sounds like a very good idea I mean I imagine this news might have gone under the radar for many of Uppsala's local residents this week due to the 
blockbuster election that took place uh, the weekend before last. Maybe we won't talk about it much, but the headlines were basically shouting about the fact that the Nationalist Party with neo-Nazi roots, the Swedish Democrats, broke 17% of the vote, which was actually less than the polls and analysts had been predicting, but still makes them the potential kingmakers for either the right or the left block of parties which, like, drew. Only 12% of voters in Uppsala voted for the Swedish Democrats, so less than nationally. So I think for the other 82% of Uppsala voters, not 82, I can't do maths, other 88% of voters that uh, need cheering up this week because of the relative success of these monstrous nationalists, take good week from us and take WWF's One Planet Prize. You deserve it. Well done. I feel like we should go to Uppsala and check it out and find out what's so green about it. But we'd have to find a very carbon neutral way of getting there. We would maybe train. Or walking. Probably take like five days. <laughs> be nice. So much quality time together. Yay. Don't say it like that. We've been super Scandi recently. Like we were in the Norwegian forest last week and in Sweden the week before that. It's not intentional. There's just been some interesting people to talk to. But I was thinking we're going to have to head to like Portugal or somewhere next week. Yeah, although this is quite a pan-European topic we're going to be speaking to Alice about, I predict. Uh, like I said earlier, it was kind of the Swedish elections that got us talking in the first place about this idea of housing for immigrants and what kind of effect that has on people's ability to integrate into a new place. But obviously it's not an issue that is uh, restricted to Sweden by any means. I was reporting in one of France's poorest towns this week, a place called Crigny, just on the edge of Paris. And I came back really kind of disturbed by just how few white people live there. You really do get a sense that it is immigrant communities that have been ghettoized in this place for decades, actually. So it's an issue that's been kind of on my mind uh, recently, This the way that urban design meets immigration policy. And uh, yeah, we don't really know much about it. So we thought we would call someone who did. Alice Pettini, she is an Italian living in Brussels and she is the research coordinator for Housing Europe. And we started by asking her how much of an impact your housing can have on how you're able to integrate into a new place. If we want to talk about meaningful integration, then of course housing is like a first step in a ladder because housing it's having a, a roof over your head but it's also the possibility to access a number of other services and start thinking about uh, all the other aspects of your life especially if we're talking about refugees these are people who had their home and they had to leave it so they really they really need to rebuild this feeling of a home or belonging somewhere. And, uh, and of course, having a house to a home to start with is very important. One of the things I was particularly interested in was uh, looking at like social housing versus subsidized private sector housing. So there are some countries where newcomers get put in social housing and somewhere they get subsidized to put in private sector. What's the difference? What's the main difference? And what's the preference? Well, to be honest, I think the reality in most countries would be probably a bit of both options. But a lot also depends on the size and availability of, of social housing, I guess. Actually, usually the most typical, let's say, path 
for asylum seekers and refugees is to go first through a phase of temporary accommodation while they wait for their status to be approved and their documents that allow them to participate more fully into society and to get a job and so on. Uh, and then they can apply to get social housing or decide to turn to the private sector. So actually, both options should be available. But um, in some countries, I think there's also a general uh, lack or shortage of uh, social and affordable housing, not only for the uh, refugees, but in general for the overall population. So this can really limit this possibility. And one of the ways in which meaningful integration seems to be possible is by having some kind of demographic mix within housing. Do you have any examples of where you think it's been done really well, that refugees have been housed in places where they're living with people who've been living there for a long time and not just living amongst other refugees? Yes, I think this is really a key aspect a few examples come to mind. Um, there's a still relatively new but, but very good example in Amsterdam, for instance. It's the Start Block project. And what they did is basically turned a former sports ground. They created a new uh, housing estate where the choice of tenant was done so that now you have uh, young refugees and young Dutch people living together. And the project is working so well that they are now trying to replicate it in other parts of the city of Amsterdam. And what is really, really interesting is also that there is uh, not only a strong uh, element of uh, living together and trying to create um, links, but also real friendship among residents, but also they are really encouraged to manage the estate and the activities that are organized in it on their own. I've got a friend in uh, Hamburg, a young Afghan refugee friend who is living in something that sounds quite similar. It sounds like a model that does seem to be kind of taking off in different places. Yes, indeed. There are examples also in, uh, in Germany and in a few other Dutch municipalities that we've heard of, but I'm sure it's, uh, it's something that it's being replicated uh, a bit all over the place. But there are also uh, more, let's say, long-lasting examples of really trying to create mixed communities in the social housing sector. There are, for example, really good examples in, uh, in Vienna, such as the Globaler Hof building. That is something that is very famous, very well known uh, in the Austrian capital. And it's basically an estate that was built by now, I think about 20 years ago. But the idea was really uh, to try to create a real mix by having 50-50 between Austrians and residents of foreign origins. And this is known as the real interethnic uh, neighborhood. And it's become a model that, again, is being replicated uh, across Austria. So it's it's another good um, example of this. There's one other example in Amsterdam that I know about, which is, I don't know if you've heard about it, but there's some huge old prison tower blocks uh, in the Bijlmer in the southeast of Amsterdam. The prison was shut down in 2016 because they've run out of prisoners. They've got a prisoner shortage. <laughs> what a problem. Yeah, what a problem. And they've turned these old prison blocks into accommodation for refugees who are arriving in the country. When I heard this, it made me really uncomfortable, this idea that we're going to be saying people, yeah, 
welcome to the country. You can sleep in a prison cell. But I've heard a bit more that they've actually tried really hard to make it into a creative hub. And they've got like young Dutch people who get subsidized offices in the building too. So they're really trying hard to make it nice. What's your opinion on this? I mean, it's quite controversial. The idea of uh, housing uh, refugees in a former prison, of course, has a very bad symbolic value attached to it. But at the same time, I think this could also be considered as part of a general movement in the housing sector and especially in cities, that is to try to use existing buildings that were not meant for residential use and to turn them into accommodations. So you have examples, for instance, of uh, um, the transformation of military barracks into housing in Paris. You have many examples in the Netherlands, in Brussels itself, where I live, of transforming former office buildings into housing. So I think there are different ways of looking at this. And in a way, I think we cannot be naive about land scarcity. So yeah. building land is, is getting a, a really rare uh, good. So we have to think of how to transform what already exists. I actually know someone or a friend of a friend lives in that project in the Belmer in Amsterdam. And I think while they were really grateful to have a roof over their head somewhere safe that wasn't Baghdad, it's like you said, Alice, earlier, like they know it's not a home for them. Like it felt really temporary. And it just made me realize like their story, having accommodation is one thing, but having like a permanent home is a completely different thing. Yeah. In this respect, it's very important also to talk about the quality standards. Because, of course, not uh, all options that are available to refugees, especially uh, when the immediate phase, when they arrive in the new in the new country, they shouldn't be considered as a, a decent accommodation, basically. A few years ago in the UK, there was uh, at the height of kind of sympathy for refugees. I feel like there was a peak. Uh, people started publicly declaring that they would offer their spare rooms to refugees fleeing war-torn regions. And that included a few politicians, including the First Minister of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon. I don't think many of these politicians ended up actually housing refugees, um, although perhaps they just decided not to publicise it. But nonetheless, I wanted to know whether you thought that this could be, and maybe is in some cases, a solution for ordinary people who have a spare room to offer that at least for temporary accommodation at the start? Of course, if this is uh, to be understood as temporary accommodation, for sure. I mean, it's, it's, I think there are waves of solidarity that are really impressive from private uh, citizens towards uh, refugees and newcomers, and this should be encouraged. And I think there are a number of NGOs that are playing an intermediary role in this, and they're doing a really good job. There are a number of, uh, especially internet-based platforms that are trying to match people who are willing to offer a spare room or accommodation and uh, refugees looking for a home. It's also interesting to see that in some cases this is turning more towards actually helping uh, refugees trying to get a stable accommodation. One of the examples is the Convivial program uh, in Brussels that is run by um, a voluntary organization. And basically, they act as intermediaries between refugees and future landlords. And what they do is to really try to build mutual trust and provide support on both sides so that they can access not only a temporary accommodation, but a normal rental contract. 
One of the reasons we've called you today, as you know, is because we've just had elections in Sweden and immigration was obviously a big part of that election. And in particular, the, the challenge of integrating newcomers to Swedish society. How in general has Sweden gone about housing its asylum seekers in recent years? Sweden is well known for being one of the countries that has uh, welcomed the highest number of, of refugees compared to the, to the size of the population. Sweden has an interesting um, system when it comes to housing, with a very strong role for the municipal housing sector, but also I would say a fair system of rent negotiation also in the private sector, so that the rental sector is really quite regulated and affordable to tenants. At the same time, they have a lot of problems with a really high demand, especially in, in Stockholm and in big cities. And just to give you an idea, to access public housing in Stockholm, you might have to wait for as long as 20 years. 20? Yeah, so it's really a problem of, uh, of shortage of housing, but there have been changes in the recent past. And uh, the fact that construction is picking up again will probably help relieving this, uh, this pressure. Nobody's perfect in a way. So even in Sweden, uh, although they have probably the best uh, welfare system and social model in Europe, and we all look at Sweden like an excellent example. But nevertheless, there are some cases of concentrations of poverty, especially in the periphery of, uh, of big cities. And this is where a lot of people with a migrant background uh, uh, live. Yeah, I mean, that, that's something that sounds really familiar to me living in Paris. We have a reputation in France for having these suburbs where kind of immigrant communities get kind of ghettoized and and even the word suburb in French is kind of used as shorthand for like all of these urban problems wrapped together. Is that a problem that you see kind of everywhere in Europe or are some countries better at fixing that than others? Oh, it's a hard nut to crack. I think some cities like, for example, Vienna or Amsterdam that have a really, really high share of existing housing stock as social housing including in the, the center of the cities, they probably manage to avoid the situation to a larger extent than others. So there are good examples there. But of course, it's a, a reality in many urban centers. And this is why there are a number of uh, urban renewal projects going on. What's also interesting, going back to Sweden and the issue of refugees, because Sweden has been such a welcoming country, but of course there are sometimes tensions when it comes to making sure that people can integrate in the new society. Some of our members, especially from public housing companies, have really concentrated on mobilizing uh, the local residents and the local communities before the arrival of, of new refugees. And I think this is a very important uh, part of the work, but maybe one that is not fully recognized making sure that uh, integration is a two-way process and that the local community and the newcomers can really live together as good neighbours. Absolutely. When I think about all this stuff around integration, I tend to think about it in moral terms. Like it, it is wrong that people should get isolated in their community. And it's, it's a good thing in general if people kind of mix together. Is there an economic argument to make that mixing people together is, is like better for the economy of a country as well? It's a very good question and a very controversial one because there's a lot of uh, academic research being done on, uh, on this issue. One of the things that we've learned by talking to experts uh, in this area is that it's somehow important that social mix is not something entirely imposed as a top-down. 
In some cases, for example, for newcomers, the fact of being close to people from the same origins, family, friends or friends can help, for example, establishing economic activities and so on. There's a balance to strike, but for sure, what we know also from uh, uh, European data is that in the end, in more mixed neighborhood, children tend to have much better educational achievements, which over time will eventually turn into uh, an economic impact. That was Alice Patini. If you're interested in all the stuff around uh, designing housing projects for refugees, she's just been working on a whole report about it, which we will link to. Housing Europe is also part of this really interesting project called Designing Inclusion, which is trying to get refugees' perspectives taken into account more when it comes to urban design stuff. So you should check that out too. Appropriately, the happy ending is about migration as well. But it is a bit controversial, I'm afraid, Katie. Once again, it always seems to be. Don't hate me. I'm trying really hard to find uncontroversially happy endings, but it is proving difficult. That said, I do think this one is like a happy result for the protagonist in question. And the protagonist in question is, in fact, a superhero, according to much of the world's media. Yes, I am talking about Mamadou Gassama, the Malian migrant who had been living in France illegally until he bravely saved the life of a small boy who he saw hanging from a balcony in Paris. This happened a few months ago, and I'm sure most of you have seen the video, but it was just last Wednesday that he was granted his French citizenship that had been promised by Emmanuel Macron after the video of his rescue had gone viral. Now, he has also signed a contract for an internship with the French fire services and was offered a medal of bravery by the city of Paris. So I I think it's safe to say that it's a happy ending for Mamadou, but also controversial. Why is it controversial, Katie? Because it's part of this massive debate in France about like whether you have to rescue a toddler dangling off a building to be considered like a good migrant. And to be considered French, maybe. To be like, oh, he's a superhero, so you can be French. Exactly. Like you have to really go the extra mile, it seems. Like it was funny, like the kind of waves of coverage. There was the first wave that was like, yay, what a nice story. Isn't this guy amazing? Which is true. Like he's amazing and totally deserves this job and deserves citizenship. And uh, he's got a lovely smile, which really helps. (laughs) Which is the main thing. (laughs) Which is the main thing. People that have good smiles deserve French citizenship. But um, it did spark a lot of soul searching over what it says about the French government's attitudes that like oh bing someone's done a media friendly thing give him a French passport it certainly sits very uncomfortably with me but like like you say I'm very happy for this very nice smiley young man and I guess if they hadn't offered him citizenship it would have seemed really awful but then again I, I don't think the problem is that he was offered French citizenship I think it's the whole relationship with illegal migrants in the country yeah and lots of other countries. Side note, my German colleague was writing about this today and it really her headline really caught my eye. I think it just said like Superman is Französisch or something like that. Superman is French was her headline. It made me smile. That's a very good one and exactly the kind of uh, headline that Emmanuel Macron wanted. He probably thinks of himself as the French Superman. Yeah, that's true. He was like, yes, uh, Superman has always been French. (laughs) That's so racist. You're not allowed to do that accent. That is not racist. You can't be racist about Emmanuel (laughs) Macron. Also, I do bad French accents all the time and you totally let me get away with it. You probably shouldn't. 
anyway, thank you so much for listening to another episode of The Europeans. Please continue to tell all your friends about it because... I think it's something that they would like to listen to. I think so too. I very much think that everyone's friends would like this show. Uh, we've also been getting some great reviews recently on what we now have to call the Apple Podcasts Store. Is that what we're supposed to call it? We are meant to call it Apple Podcasts, not the Apple Podcasts Store. <laughs> Katie, you're not doing very well at making us sound young. I'm so confused and old. We've got some amazing reviews recently, including one from someone who was so convinced that she'd seen you on the streets of Munich that she went up to a random man and was like, excuse me, are you Dominic Kramer from the Europeans you are famous apparently although apparently not famous enough for people to know what I actually look like you do have a very generic face that is so not true some people do have generic faces but I am not one of them I if anything have a very unique face that's why you've been cast as an evil doctor I'm gonna stop being mean to you now (laughs) and uh, and go away to my old lady life we'll be back next week with more tales from this wonderful continent but if you would like to hang out with us on the internet before then you can find us in all kinds of places we are on instagram at europeans podcast we are on twitter at europeans pod and facebook just type in the europeans and see you next week by which stage maybe the conservative party in the uk will have like decided what they're going to do about brexit but we won't talk about it anyway. Yay! On that lovely, cheery note, have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you next week. Dewey. Ciao.